You are listening to Hungry Books, a podcast about the best books ever written on the subject of food. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And each episode, I present a book that will change your life. Hello, hungry readers. I hope you're getting your bearings of whatever this new normality looks like where you live. I know it looks very weird where I am. You might note that I have slightly changed the order of the episodes and you will hear all about the apple orchard. Believe me, the pandemic has changed everybody's logistics, so I hope you won't fault me for that. And honestly, this episode's book won't disappoint at all. And it is called Empires of Food, Feast, Famine and the Rise and Fall of Civilizations by Evan D.G. Fraser and Andrew Remus that presents the idea that in order to understand the success and failure of civilizations, we must look into their food systems. Because unlike any other area of study, food allows us to analyze humanity's survival strategies, our food production, trade and management of scarcity. Now, what exactly is a food system? Well, the University of Oxford's Future of Food program defines it as a complex network of activities involving the production, processing, transport and consumption of food. And you may ask, why is the problem with that? Well, it is fair to say that we've done some things right in the last 10,000 years as we've managed to survive as a species, showing an enormous adaptive capacity and the ability to come up with clever solutions to complicated problems. The premise of this book is rooted into the notion that history has shown us that most civilizations have fallen largely because of the flaws of their food system and their decline actually follows a pattern and our very own civilization shows every sign to present the same pattern of doom as many other civilizations before us had. And because we have proven to be alarmingly slow at coming up with better integrated solutions to address the increasing demand for food, managing natural resources and fixing the global food economy that has generated a systematic food inequality, that is a limited access to foods that are healthy and affordable for everyone. Dun dun dun! But I promise you, there are still ways to save us from ourselves. In the notes of this episode on your podcast app, you will find a link to get this book as well as some other websites and references I will mention today. And there you will also find my social media accounts if you want to reach out on Instagram, email or Twitter. So buckle up for this roller coaster and on with the show. I read this book over six years ago in the stormy northwest coast of Cumbria in England. And I thought then that it was a burning call to engage society as a whole in stopping passive bystanders of the destruction of our own future and means of survival. And revisiting it six years later, uh, well, it has made an even more poignant read. Things have changed and it's more evident than ever that the idea of an interdependent world is more fragile than ever, as we have exhausted more and more our resources and have become perilously vulnerable to the climate changes we've caused. 
even more so, the current world pandemic has laid bare the inefficiencies, inequity and frailty of our food system and welfare policies. So this book is divided in three parts, with a total of nine chapters. And rather charmingly, the book follows the story of a through-and-through Florentine Renaissance merchant called Francesco Carletti, who was born in 1573 and died in 1636. Carletti was the first private merchant to circumnavigate the globe, and his adventures and misfortunes provide the perfect canvas in which the authors pour a rich historical context. A fair warning about the structure of this book is that it doesn't make chronological analysis of food systems. The authors present specific events, cases and moments in time to illustrate the central topic of each chapter and establishes comparisons to our modern challenges regarding, of course, food security, but also wars, environmental disequilibrium and other related things. While the subject is incredibly complex, the authors really achieve to illustrate and help us understand how food, economics, agriculture, human empires are all strands of the same narrative, because they are a construct of human arrangements between technology and land. Now, before we get into the big highlights of the book, I want to mention that this book was published in 2010, and it became a sort of preamble of a much larger and ambitious initiative called Feeding 9 Billion, which was launched by Professor Fraser, one of the authors of this book, in 2012. While Empires of Food is a great educational tool to raise awareness about the global food security challenges, Feeding 9 Billion has a specific purpose to educate, yes, but engage students, policymakers and grassroots organizations to better understand the implications of these challenges and, more importantly, it helps us create viable solutions. So to help us do this, I develop a series of learning materials that are free to download or request on their website. And in the notes of this episode, you will find links in case you feel increasingly urged to take action as you hear all about empires of Food. So I thought that it would be more engaging to follow the story of this slightly obscure character that is Francesco Carletti, whom the authors call the hero of the book. And a fair warning is that probably today, this year, this time, this week, right now, we will be more cautious to call a slave trader a hero, in spite of achieving remarkable success as a merchant of edible and expensive commodities. He was indeed many things, but a hero he was not. A man of his time, Carletti, pretty much embodies the archetypical independent Renaissance merchant, who, with a bit of luck and much drive, he went on to sail around the world and trade with the largest empires and colonies of the time. So he went from China to New Spain and from Africa to South America. But more importantly, he was a very disciplined diarist. And thanks to his recollections, we have a big insight into that world. We learn that by the end of the 1500s, Spain was at the height of its imperial power and was arguably the world's most affluent commercial center. And the coastal city of Seville was one of the busiest ports of Europe, where merchants would compete for highly profitable commissions to collect and distribute precious exports from the colonies that were appointed by the Spanish crown, England and Portugal. 
These expeditions took a lot of time, and they were often very risky, as pirate attacks, bad weather, scurvy, mutinies, and many other misadventures were part of the routine during such colonial travels. This was also the height of the Colombian exchange, by which maritime trade routes for the first time dispersed food, seeds, farming animals, or crafts, fabrics, art, as well as ideas, human cargo, and diseases. And here it is Evan Fraser expanding a little more about the motivations of the European expansion of the 16th century. The main impetus behind exploring the New World was obviously the um, Spanish and the Portuguese, and they were very much facing very serious subsistence crisis where the supply of food simply wasn't meeting the demand of the communities at that point. And this again coincides with the trough of what's known as the Little Ice Age. So there was a very bad period of weather in around 1600 to 1650 that exacerbated this problem. They probably were doing pretty much as good as they could do by and large. One of the first commissions of Carletti was bestowed by his father, who was also a very seasoned merchant. And this was to collect a cargo of slaves from Africa and take them to the West Indies in 1593. This type of job wasn't seen as remotely extraordinary at the time, but the authors take the time to highlight that all the trade empires built in the colonies of the New World were created by the mass exploitation of resources and introduction of crops such as sugarcane, fruits and eventually coffee, tobacco and cotton, and were almost exclusively built on the back of the enslavement and trafficking of millions of African and indigenous people. And while there are many cases in history of ancient empires where slavery was a fundamental part of their economy, never before had existed a global trade of humans that brought so much suffering, violence and destruction for the benefit of the few who controlled these colonial empires. But even as early as 1614, the hugely important University of Salamanca pioneered modern discussions of business ethics, loudly condemning the slave trade, lashing out with moral and religious outbursts against the sins caused by slavery. And of course, they felt necessary to add the dangerous practice of usury, a very well-known Jewish financial service. The authors do mention that Carletti explicitly wrote about experiencing a big remorse for taking part in the slave trade and that branding, chaining and causing suffering with the horrific conditions of the transatlantic trips to the point of literally causing the death of slaves did disturb his soul, but really not to the point to make him stop thinking about the economic reward. And here we have every reason to assume that Carletti, just like many of his contemporaries, would justify his actions by telling themselves that God actually knew how tortured they felt about that. So surely that was good enough to save their souls. A less offensive aspect of Carletti's life is that unlike most traders, he was also very interested in exploration and took every opportunity to venture in exploring foreign lands once his businesses were done. And he took the time to travel into the territories known today as 
Peru, Colombia, Panama, and rather impressively, he even made a huge trip from the coast of Acapulco to the capital of New Spain, where he marveled at the exotic beauty of the former Aztec capital, where he even visited the Chinampa agricultural system by which man-made beds of soil rest on top of platforms kissing the surface of canals. In subsequent travels, Carletti and his father spent some time in El Salvador, where they witnessed a rather puzzling practice, well, to their eyes anyways, but a common thing for the ancient tribes of Mesoamerica, and that was using cocoa beans as currency. Not only he documented the exchanges people performed at local markets using these beans to trade, but also, for the first time in his life, he drank chocolate. And he wrote this. It becomes a habit and is so hard to give up drinking it every morning or in fact every evening after supper when the weather is warm and particularly when one is traveling. <laughs> Meaning all the time. <laughs> and here we find an interesting note from the authors pointing out that Just as cocoa is incredibly versatile, as it can be easily transformed from a roasted bean into a soft paste to transport and store, many empires of the ancient world saw their ability to trade surplus products crippled by their inability to preserve them. And most foods aren't so forgiven as cocoa beans, because to this day, decay is still a challenge that can limit the breadth of a food empire. While the anecdotal commentary in this book is entertaining, it actually serves the purpose to reveal the complexity of globalization in times of Carletti by means of colonialism and mercantilism. Because while we might not blink today as we glide into the world-filled aisle into our supermarkets to fetch miso paste, basmati rice and Cajun mix, The aggressive and intrusive expansion of Portugal, the Netherlands, England and Spain in the 16th century was seldom a welcomed thing. Even more so as it came heavily embedded with a farce of religious and spiritual pursuits, as it was in the case of Spain and Portugal. Because just as colonialism and trade imposed Western rules of engagement that defined modern capitalism, Religion also aimed to expand a Western worldview, which came across as patronizing and often using violent means of conversion. Hence, it was invariably met with more than skepticism. Carletti recounts a time when him and his father fooled the strict trade rules that forced trade with Asia and Japan to be conducted only under Spanish and Portuguese contracts. So they sailed from Acapulco in New Spain to the merchant port of Nagasaki in Japan that was under Portuguese control. And upon disembarking, they took a field trip to see the crucified bodies of Franciscan missionaries before enjoying the cheerful company of prostitutes, which he notes was an activity far more popular in Nagasaki than, apparently, anywhere else in Asia. So while we might enthusiastically think of the excitement of the Renaissance trade that made available spices and ingredients that flooded the world's pantries, we are also reminded of the many cultural and social ramifications that this period brought to the world, all justified in the name of profit. Because for all maritime empires, trade was the means to seize a global bounty. 
Just as global trade was creating high profits for merchants and empires, colonies always got the short stick of it. And the legacy of this model pretty much shaped our modern-day international trade that perpetuates the practice of presenting good enough deals for developing nations and the main beneficiaries are still first-world countries. And to explain this, the authors present several examples, all of which illustrate the deep resentment it caused and the devastating effects, including crippling traditional ways of life and farming that got dissolved into the global economic melting pot. So while we can identify the clear profiteering of colonial practices that paid next to nothing for highly valued commodities whose production came at a great human and environmental cost, much has to be argued about our current model of quote-unquote fair trade. As the authors point out, that while the outcomes of it should, in principle, foster empowerment for the producers, it really depends largely on who does the buying and how much they're willing to curve their profits just to keep with the pace and yield of normal crop cycles. The truth is that no family-run allotments will ever be enough to produce the world's coffee, bananas, avocados or tea. And because of this, even the legal understanding of the concept of fair has been reformulated time and time again. Because we all know or should know that the price of tea or coffee is dictated in large auctions at stock markets. It's not said by farmers. And the same goes for the rules of who gets the contracts. It's seldom small or medium co-ops where they all share the same risks and profits because they're often given to industrial plantations owned by private companies whose decisions and deals don't respond to the farmers' needs or views. The idea that comes to mind when trying to describe this book is that the sections really read as secular parables and lessons are extracted from historical episodes. And in the words of Aristotle, to whom the authors turn for reassurance, he apparently pondered about the fact that food empires are only as robust as their weakest link, which means that they are interconnected into a mutually dependent network of imports and exports. So, in this scenario, a farm's failure becomes a city's riot. Of course, Aristotle lived in ancient Greece. So, distant and all as that might seem, you only need having watched the news in the past months of this global quarantine to see how farmers were throwing away thousands of liters of milk while urban food banks struggled to cope with an overwhelming demand. Meatpacking companies have been forcing their employees to work without personal protection equipment at their coronavirus riddle facilities just so their companies wouldn't stop selling, even if that meant the unnecessary loss of human lives. So that takes me back to the core of the book. How on earth can we turn these historical lessons into strategies to achieve global food security? So to illustrate this, I draw some examples from the book that presented different scenarios of food apocalypses, which, of course, serve the purpose of being cautionary tales. And while I do that, I'm sure you can think of modern-day examples of this. So number one, 
Let's begin with erratic weather patterns. The famines of the 1870s caused by El Niño brought prolonged droughts and saw millions dying in Asia and North Africa. The authors argue that the dependence of the local population on monocultures that were lost proved absolutely devastating, as the pre-existing negative impact of this practice had already compromised an already fragile food system. Now, a monoculture is a highly productive and highly efficient farming practice by which a single crop is planted, namely a cereal like rice, barley or corn. The problem with this is that this bonanza will only last for a short period of time, of no more than 20 years, at the cost of a big environmental impact that sees mass deforestation to create farming lands, which, of course, brings soil erosion and an imbalanced cost to the ecosystem. 2. Another great lesson they present is the collapse of the Roman Empire, which surprisingly, had less to do with the barbarian invasions and more with the underlying problems brought again, you guessed it, by climate change. The expansion and agricultural prosperity of the Roman Empire really was possible because of blessed and stable warm weather patterns from around 200 BC to 150 AC. But as these weather patterns became more and more erratic, that caused longer and colder seasons, so their food system became more and more compromised. On the other hand, the expansion of the empire that had previously brought wealth, it also brought diseases, and in this case they came in the form of pandemics caused by a smallpox-like virus. So, Food scarcity and the fall of the empire's demographic caused the total meltdown of the imperial system. And by the 3rd century, Rome was already beginning to starve and falling from within. Internal political conflicts and invasions were really just the final stroke. And here I want you to hear from Evan Fraser about the fall of the Roman Empire. Certainly, the fact that the Romans, as they expanded, tend to over-farm their soil was one reason that they had to continue to expand further and further and further, ever in search of, of more and more fertile grain fields. So one of the causes for expansion and, and ultimately over-expansion for, politically for the Roman Empire was need for more and more amounts of food. And this was exacerbated actually by climate. And the Romans at their peak enjoyed what's called by climatologists the Roman Warm Period, where temperatures were pretty good. But then the Roman Warm Period came to an end and it cooled to a much less pleasant, much shorter growing season period of time that stretched somewhere between three and four hundred is when it started, then about a thousand AD. And at this period of time, then these overtaxed Roman fields that were already under a fair bit of pressure um, due to the demand of the cities actually started becoming less productive because of climate. And that created an acceleration, the, the speed of the decline. Number three will sound familiar as well because the authors turn to the classic example of the collapse of the Mayan civilization. Its agricultural prosperity enabled them to expand and feed an ever-growing population. But the more cities grew, the more jungles and mangroves were destroyed to make way for human activity. So the deathly combination of soil erosion, drought and deforestation met, just like in Rome, with political and economic trouble. And this society was simply unable to overturn these man-made crises and their downfall and abandonment of all their cities still remains a crude warning for all. 
And if you think that we only made that mistake once, well, here's Andrew Remus telling us otherwise. In order for food empires to grow, people tend to specialize. Geographical areas tend to specialize in particular crops so that they can grow an excess of them and trade them for wealth. Um, one of the problems with specialization is that it tends to lead to very fragile systems. Areas where a single blight can wipe out a crop and leave people hungry. A single uh, crop can leach the land of, of its uh, nutrients. And specialization is one of the great problems facing us today. Number four. The Irish potato crisis. Now, this is a more recent example of the enormous risk and mistake that is relying entirely on one staple crop as a source of food and trade. In this case, weather can't hardly be blamed for this catastrophe because the failure of crops really hit much harder for several reasons. One of them is the mass migration from rural areas to industrial cities that had left the burden of feeding a country resting on the shoulders of very few and impoverished farmers. Also, the change in the possession of the land that was now controlled by English landlords who weren't living in Ireland meant that they could not offer neither quick preventive solutions nor palliative ones. Not that they really cared about much anyways. And the fifth and last example is the rise and fall of medieval Europe. Now, the end of the Roman Empire marked the beginning of the Middle Ages, which is a period that receives that name because literally is between the ancient world and the Renaissance, the Middle Ages only really occurred in Europe and lasted for a thousand years, from the year 400 to 1492, when Columbus stumbled by chance with America. So, the fall of the Roman Empire meant literally that the whole of the empire was dissolved and there were no central governments behind. That is, no governors ruling over the provinces, no armies to protect people, no administration to control commerce or providing public services. Nada. Total collapse. So as you can imagine, it took Europe a while to get themselves back together. This also saw the rise of thousands of monastic communities who created very successful agricultural models to cope with the demand for food and services. Now, fields were more or less self-sufficient, but very poorly administrated. And as agriculture grew in Europe, so did the population, which quadrupled by the end of the 1200s. But the sharp increase in population and demand for food meant that the supply just simply couldn't catch up. But while things were good, and there was an enormous surplus of crops and foods, this prompted many technological innovations, fueled by the need to preserve these foods, to transfer them and sell for a higher profit. And we see the birth of the tradition of the cottage industry precisely here. So they started doing products like cheese made with surplus milk and preserved by fermentation. Same with wine and other drinks made with surplus grapes and even honey. And ales and beers preserved by the use of Humulus lupulus, otherwise known as hops, which is one of nature's most efficient antimicrobial agents. 
So here is one of the authors highlighting the agricultural achievements that took place in the Middle Ages. So starting in around 9-10, the monks start establishing, or the monasteries provide sort of an institutional framework or a societal structure, something, some, some sort of clubhouse for people to get together and protect themselves from the sort of the crazy chaos that's going on outside, um, politically speaking, and allows them to do things like start tinkering with agricultural products, crop rotation, better plows, these sort of very mundane-sounding things that actually provided that boost of food that allowed society to become wealthy enough to build something like Notre Dame cathedral. So we're talking then by the 11-1200s. And yeah, that tradition of agricultural innovation that was established in the monastic communities uh, does indeed continue as a thread. But where they really play the pivotal role is sort of between 9 and 1100, where the monks sort of take on the characteristics of a modern agribusiness, where they, they have monopolies on retail, they have monopolies on production, they own all the good technology. And as a result of that, they become extremely powerful, extremely wealthy. But in doing so, create enough food to create a society that's wealthy enough to like I just said, build Notre Dame Cathedral. Sadly, pests arrived and again these epidemics of the Middle Ages killed almost half of the population in Europe. So which exactly are the lessons from these examples and which strategies can we harvest from these? Now to explain this, I took the trouble of reading and watching all the instructional material from the Feeding 9 Billion initiative, which, like I mentioned, is Evan Fraser's sort of spin-off from this book, which capitalizes from the analysis of the rise and fall of civilizations and boils down what he calls a four-part blueprint to succeed at creating both local and global sustainable and balanced food systems. So these are the four strategies. First, we have science and technology. These two should enable farmers to produce larger and more resilient crops without damaging the land or causing health problems. But science and technology must find locally appropriate solutions for local challenges. Strategy number two, distribution. It is really a big fat lie that there isn't enough food produced in the world to feed all humans. However, the unequal access and distribution of it is really the problem. And this can only be achieved if national governments and international organizations collaborate to create more resilient programs to cope with emergencies and prevent food shortages. Strategy number three, support for local food systems. At its very basic definition, it doesn't necessarily mean self-sufficiency, but it means making regions of all sizes less vulnerable to the imbalances in the food supply chain, meaning producing enough to cope with natural disasters, conflict and other factors. Strategy number four is having stronger regulation and proactive policies. Because without the legal framework and funding for more sustainable farming that looks after the protection of the environment as much as the benefit for the consumer, well, it won't be possible to achieve any security. And we need this too in order to reduce the power of large self-serving corporations. Now, here I will let Ivan Fraser explain the flip side of this coin and how can we compromise using them all together. 
To effectively tackle the challenges of feeding the future, the most sensible approach is to imagine these four types of solutions as components of a well-balanced investment portfolio. One that's resilient enough to weather economic storms, is still able to provide strong year-over-year -year returns, and is secure against fraud and theft. Think of new agricultural technologies as similar to high-octane IT stocks. They're an important part of a profitable investment strategy. But an over-reliance on them could cost you your shirt if the market turns against you. Likewise, local food systems are similar to more modest, rainy-day investments. They can't be relied upon to feed everyone all the time, but they're a vital buffer between consumers and the dangerous swings of the international market. And of course, Every sound portfolio includes a cash reserve in case of emergencies, hence the need for more mechanisms to store and distribute food in times of crisis. Lastly, one of the lessons of the present economic crisis is that left unregulated, financial institutions behave badly. In the same way, we need a robust legal framework to restrain agriculture from destroying the environment. Now, before we go to the final part of this episode, I want to tell you a little bit about the authors, because by now you must be wondering what kind of monsters managed to disentrail all of these lessons from thousands of years of human history. So even Fraser, one of the co-authors, has a degree in anthropology from the University of Toronto and a master's in forestry with a PhD in resource management and environmental studies, which explains a lot, of course. He is currently the director of the Aral Food Institute at the University of Gulef in Canada and is a senior lecturer in sustainable development at the University of Leeds. And as I mentioned before, he is the founder of the Feeding 9 Billion Food Security Initiative which has created a series of educational resources like video teaching material and even a card game about global food security. He is also the author of a graphic novel called Food Crisis about a fictitious food crisis that hits North America in 2020, which, spoiler alert, we no longer have to imagine. The other author, Andrew Rimes, he is American and has a degree in history and has had a long and successful career as a journalist in Boston, Massachusetts. And he currently is the executive writer at the Northeastern University in Boston. Previously to working on Empires of Food, these two guys also co-authored another highly praised book called Beef, the untold story of how milk, meat and muscle shaped the world back in 28. And more recently, he also published a dystopian novel that was in 2019 called The End Note about a world whose society is at the brink of collapse because of food security issues and overpopulation. Which again, which again, <laughs> should be changed from the fiction to the non-fiction shelf. So here are my five reasons why I think you should read this book. Numero uno. What it could pose as an unruly writing, jumping from period to period, it actually is a very clever exercise at drawing parallels in history. 
think of having all humanity's history written in post-its. Then you go and group them by events and by topic. I think this is a much agile and clever way to build an argument about civilizations and their behavioral patterns. Number two, this is possibly one of the earliest modern examples of serious food studies doing a crossover from academic silos to being offered for mass consumption. The many references to past and modern day examples really offer something for everyone to resonate with at many levels. And it invites us to think about the impact of the food problems that our own food systems are experiencing. Number three, a great takeaway from this book is that the authors thoroughly explain the idea that territories are but a result of the human intervention and the modification done to the landscape for the purpose of obtaining food, for building shelters, creating infrastructure for transport, travel, etc. The modern idea that nature is there for the taking and that we live separate lives from the quote-unquote environment is largely what has contributed to our disconnect with nature and above all has shaped our little and useless sense of responsibility about the impact we cause with our actions. And to show the consequences of these, time and time again, the book illustrates that with many cautionary tales. Number four. The authors dismantle the Western-centered idea that the so-called genesis or cradle of civilization and agriculture took place in Mesopotamia. And they explained that the agricultural revolution was indeed a widespread phenomena that occurred more or less simultaneously all around the world, and that the domestication of cereals, among other factors, gave way to a sedentary way of life that created our food systems. Now, why is this important? That helps us value and see many other examples from other civilizations with the same attention. We should stop seeing the world under the assumption that Western civilizations are somehow more advanced or better, because there are lessons to be learned from many other cases. And last, numero cinco, I really think this book offers a relentless exercise at being purposeful about embracing self-criticism. Because while it presents the history of empires and civilizations, it ultimately brings it down to our individual role in it. And they end with a heavy critique and much-needed reckoning with our growing superficial interest in food. Now, bear in mind that back when this book was published, the word foodie didn't really have a mainstream use. I mean, we're talking pre-Instagram and food porn hadn't really taken off as it did soon after. So they go on and tackle the superficial side of the foodie culture, which the authors call the new gluttony that isn't centered in overeating per se, but in the obsessive consumption of food-related content for the purpose of entertainment, with deep undertones of snobbery and a fixation for the exotic. But what they view as the real scene of it all is that it misses the point that food isn't fashion. It is survival for individuals and for civilizations. And the new gluttony habit of turning food into lifestyle statements risks undermining the critical danger we face. 
because fashion, they say, won't keep us from starving. Which is so true if you think of it. And really anyone that has a mouth to eat can and should read this book. It really is a great tool to start educating ourselves in food literacy. Now, I won't deny that this is a challenging read, not only for the complexity of the information presented, but because it really is a serious comparative study that requires for the reader to bring in our own analysis, stop, ponder, scribble, highlight. It is engaging, provocative and very, very timely. And there you have it. What an odyssey this book is. I really hope I have tempted you to pick up a copy of this freaking good book. The name is Empires of Food, Feast, Famine and the Rise and Fall of Civilizations by Evan D.G. Fraser and Andrew Remus. And if you scroll down on this episode's notes, you can click on the link to purchase a copy of it before you forget. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hungry Books Podcast, which was written and produced by me, Rocio Carvajal. I have also left the links for the Feeding 9 Billion initiative. If you enjoyed this episode, help me get the word out about this podcast and share it with like-minded food heads. Also, another great way to support is by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts that really boosts the show's visibility to help it reach more people. If you want to connect with me on Instagram, find the show as at Hungry Books Podcast or scroll to see the link of my other Insta account and my Twitter. My email is at hellopasdechipotle.com. And well, that's it for me today. Stay hungry. <laughs>